Hello everyone, I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather, discuss the issues between food producers and food consumers. Jay Truett checking in from undisclosed location somewhere in southwest Missouri. How's Jay? I'm good. How are you today? I'm fabulous. It is a it is a good day. Didn't snow. We had uh, this part of uh, Missouri. It got a little cool over the last couple of nights, and so uh, we tested the uh, boundaries of frost a little bit. But you can see uh, you can see spring daylight now. I actually drove to Lincoln yesterday to uh, testify for a com- um, confirmation hearing. And I saw people applying fertilizer, and right I saw that. and I saw planters in the field. And yesterday morning, when I got up, it was thirteen degrees. Yeah, I uh, I I had a little drive around the country here recently, and it was interesting to see how many uh, how many spreader rigs I had to wait on on the yeah. road, right or. Uh, uh, tender trucks that were dragging fertilizer out and about. So tis the season though. I, you know, something, um, we had a neighbor that, uh, uh, was a great farmer, uh, when I was growing up and, uh, uh, my dad used to, uh, just pull the planter out of the barn and act and throw sacks around, you know, and act like he was out testing his planter about this time of year, just to make the neighbor nervous that he was going to plant before him. And uh, that that way we could go ahead and get the neighbor to be the first to plant, and then we could plant a few days later. But uh, That is such an issue in crop farming. I mean, once that first planter rolls, everybody is nervous. I mean, it's like ridiculous. My dad was the only one who was like, oh, yeah, geysers are rolling, but I'll, at ground temperature, I'm not putting it out there yet. Yeah, I... I do, uh, again, the kind of the joke was is that if we could uh, if we could think of it and we weren't so darn busy during the middle of the winter that my dad would just pull it out, you know, the middle of January and act yeah. like he's greasing it <laughs> and uh, the guy would be planting 10 days later. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I don't uh, think it would be wise to plant anything in Nebraska this week, but I did uh, see planters scuffling. But, you know, so it is one of the miracles of kind of the modern plant genetics that we can get away with stuff like that. Uh, we, uh, we have better, better tolerances for cold, heat, and drought, and a whole lot of other things, uh, and still keeping productivity high. I mean, I, I, uh, I drive by a, a farm here in southwest Missouri that, uh, honestly, if you were to be realistic uh, and you put it on the big scale of farmland in uh, in the United States, uh, it'd, it'd probably be in the lower 25% of what we would call really good corn ground, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I watched that. I watched the, the gentleman happens to be a good friend of mine. Um, and so I just, you know, I pay attention to what's going on on his place, sure. um, mainly because I look out to see if I can see him so I can wave at him when I go right. by, honestly. Yep. And again, he's one of these people that does everything right. But more importantly, 
he's undertaken a, a, a process of really trying to hit that max profit potential on every single square foot of, of ground. And he works really hard at it. And now he, he has yields that are double what they were uh, just 20 years ago. Sure. And, and uh, in some cases, double what they were 10 years ago. And he's doing it on land that, you know, most uh, most corn farmers in Iowa would have would would be growing grass on, you know, honestly. Um, and and I saw the same thing in Virginia. There were a couple of farmers there that had undertaken this, you know, per, perfecting the, the model and and growing nearly 300 bushels of corn an acre. On whole fields, right? Not test yep, plots, I, but I, growing 300 bushels an acre of corn. And and everybody goes, oh, well, yeah, if you put enough fertilizer on it, uh, you can grow anything or if you water it enough. And and to be honest with you, when you go talk to those people and you really talk to them about what's going on and what are they doing, that's really not what is happening. That's not what that is all about. It is about applying some really uh, innovative growing techniques and pres- true blue precision agriculture um, to every single square inch millimeter of of ground that is out there. And one the guy in Virginia that I went to his place and and looked at uh, uh, again a place where the guy was growing two averaging two hundred and eighty and ninety bushels of corn in a part of the country that you don't do that. Right. This is not Washington state where you can, you know, they hit those yield records or somewhere in Nebraska where uh, a guy's going to do that or Iowa, Illinois, where they do that, Indiana and Ohio. And I, I asked him one time, uh, how, how do you do it? And he said, you know, the truth is, he goes, I got to I got to thinking about answering your question one time. Somebody else had asked me and I just kind of shrugged my shoulders, you know, and said, I work at it really hard. He goes, I got to thinking about it. And he goes, the truth is I spend more time in my cornfield between the time that I've harvested it and I plant it than I do all the rest of the season. And he goes, that makes all the difference in the world. I look at stocks and I break down stocks and I see how they're breaking down. And I, I run little tests on how, how I'm, I'm, I'm getting the, the organic matter back in you know, I, I think the general perception for a lot of years was that uh, that uh, farmers lack some of the intel of the rest of society, right? I mean, it was, you, you know, poor old dumb farmer was kind of the uh, an unwritten but spoken thing on a regular basis, right? And the reality is, is if uh, you're dumb and you're a farmer, you're no longer a farmer. Yeah. I mean, you haven't been probably for a while. If you're an idiot, you're not making a living farming. Well, the government is subsidizing you or not. That's a different discussion. I realize that. But you're still not in business. You're not going to pay a half million dollars for a combine if you're an idiot. Uh, because nobody's going to give you the money to. So um has nothing to do with being an idiot. Yeah. But I just listened to, thanks to uh, Chuck Miller sending me uh statement by Tom Bilisak, our wonderful Secretary of Agriculture, who wouldn't know a farm if it slapped him upside the head, although he knows how to take a million dollars from the dairy folks. He's good at that. Uh-huh. Uh, 
they launched a year-long campaign to look at the racism within the USDA. Did you hear his report, which I guess is 37 pages long? I should find the entire report. Yeah. I uh, So I saw that the report was done. I didn't think I needed to read that. And I, I read everything that comes out of government. And I, I at some point in mm-hmm. today's world, you just got to stop somewhere. So I just didn't read it. I, I mean. Well, here's what I wanted to read. The, the ultimately, he said that there's systemic racism within the USDA. All right. So let's shut the thing down. Get rid of it. Well, we don't need it anymore. You Go. know, and Gone. I, I find it just like really intriguing that they come to that that conclusion, especially if you've been to the USDA in Washington, D.C. Um, because uh, I don't know what percentage it would be, but it's a va- it's a vast majority of the, the people that work at USDA in Washington, D.C. are not white. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, and, and part of the Part of the thing is, is that Washington, D.C. is an African-American community. Sure. Uh, as for its voting population and the people that actually live there, the immediate surrounding areas tend to be that as well. And, um, we, you know, we've got really, we got in, off into this weird land where uh, we're trying to, uh, so you're going to hire the people who live near work is my point they happen to be black and so that that is who your workforce is going to be they're pretty well educated right they most of them have some kind of degree or something or another uh etc etc they're paper pushers you don't need them to know a lot about agriculture to do every single job in the building Um, but when you get to macomb nebraska and you start looking around McCook. A McCook. You're, you you figure out whether you're a Macomb, Illinois, McCook. Ma, yeah, master, sorry. Yeah, we'll pick no. it up in the sec, second segment. All okay. right, Jay Truck after this. Now let's talk about Protect the Harvest right off the bat. It is nut cutting time. I don't mind telling you that. You need to empower yourself. You need to get active. You need to get loud. And you need to be a dutiful citizen. Protect the Harvest is here simply to make all of that easier for you. Getting you the information to maintain property rights, to maintain animal ownership, to maintain a healthy living, maintain a free and fed America. ProtectTheHarvest.com. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Lewis, alongside Jay Truitt. We're going to get back to the USDA and uh, the reason their systemic racism report came out just before we start debating farm bill uh hey tomorrow i'm headed to marshall missouri saline county lincoln day dinner you it's like the third or fourth time i come to missouri you gotta show up this time no i won't be there tomorrow because i've got family that is in to visit Uh uh-huh yep i'm uh it's thursday night well they're gonna be here all week because it's spring break (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, of course it is. <laughs> in uh, somewhere in Kansas, yeah. and so the kids Did are they? all here, and I'm the uncle that everybody likes to hang around. So, as long as I can still hold that honor, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like. There's, suck there's up. a chance that you're not allowed in Saline County. 
there is a chance uh, just because I used to work for one of the big competitors to the what is a very very fine radio station there. Uh, I actually really like those. Uh, uh, well, I haven't listened to it in a long time. I will today, though. I'm going to drive up during the day to uh, around Sedalia, Missouri, and oh, there visit, you go. With, visit with some people. So I'll be pretty close to Marshall. There's some Turn great people. KMMO. Yep. And I, I, I really used to like two or three of the people that worked there a great deal. Uh, had great respect for them. Good folks. Uh, uh, enjoyed. They're no them. longer there. Yeah, I, they, they retired. They retired about thirty years ago, probably. But uh, so that's why I can say nice things about them. I don't have to do that anymore. Typically, I never say anything nice about anybody in the media. But yeah, you're probably talking one thing about Brian. I haven't talked to Brian forever. I need to find Brian around this week. Yeah, well, maybe we should just track him down, make it a mission. Yeah, we need to get him back on the radio. On. Yeah, all right. Yeah. So USDA. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to create chaos, talking about systemic racism within the pro. They weren't there just for clarity on people. They were not talking about racism in the in their hiring processes. They're talking about racism in the programs. But don't the people who they hire implement the programs? Hi. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I was just pulling up the headlines that all came out of it in the various places to see, and it was kind of funny. One of the uh, one of the left-wing places. This is their headline. So this is what people were looking for out of this whole conversation. Um, Newsflash. Systemic racism at the USDA has virtually eliminated black farmers. And that is the headline that they were looking for, right? Um, They they wanted to see that. um, And I, I think we're in this mode... Uh, I had uh, I had to uh, help somebody develop a blog this last week that was about what will the election be about. And I said, you know, the interesting thing is, so you can like or not like this. I'm, I, I'm, but Ron DeSantis just went to Iowa and he told you what the GOP race platform is going to be about. He just determined what it is. Um, he, and... It is what it is. And so that speech is what it is. If you go and you listen to uh, a handful of people on the Democrat side, you can see what the whole what the next two years is going to be about. And this is this is one of the supporting documents uh, to go along with that, that even even USDA, good old USDA people, people have a hard time saying something bad about USDA. Right. I mean, they're not. um the, the general population probably couldn't even tell you what they really stand for, you know, outside of that they do some food programs or, you know, maybe WIC or, or nutrition programs for schools or something like that. And so, hang on. I just, I think I'm, back. I think I'm with you though, that people who take part in WIC and have their kid in the school nutrition program, they have no clue that USDA is behind that. I'm guessing that would be the case. Yeah, I, I think you're right. But the, the point being, we don't really need to be uh, um, in, in in political season. We don't need to be accurate. We just need to be stinging. We need to be remembered. 
And so the the facts of the whole thing are kind of just almost irrelevant, right? And uh, yeah, we, I, it, the the USDA Economic Research Service has spent a pretty good amount of money on racial and so, social equity research, and it, it's not their it's not their leading cause. But at one point we worried about things like army worms that ate up the food supply, right? And, or uh, uh, pesticides and, and herbicides that uh, could protect the, the food supply. And on one hand, in our society, I mean, you just have to look at our society to, to like shake your head a little bit once in a while. We're perfectly fine with having a conversation about food security and not allowing a foreign entity to to buy farmland in America, but we are diverting resources away from making that actual farmland productive in basic research and some of the things that just were made available to all of us. Back to that, back to the, the that corn farmer. I, I understand the private sector outdoes the public sector in research uh, every single time they, they, they go after it. But some of the most fundamental changes that took place in agriculture, uh, moving from uh, old line to hybrid corn varieties, et cetera, et cetera, those things were all publicly funded research. And we could debate whether or not there's a good payoff for them. But if you're going to put money into programs, is there a better payoff for the security of America's food supply to worry about producing food and or to, to worry about what color someone is who produces it and and even more importantly are we are we really even trying to do that or are we just interested in a black farmer do we care if there's enough brown farmers how many asian farmers are there you know in america and what what about the original north american farmer yeah how many indians are actually producing producing grain that it gets into the system more importantly and now let's take it to another a whole new level again with the changes that are taking place in some of the going vertically in in skyscrapers we're growing a, a, a lot of food in urban areas in a, on a smaller footprint but a tall much taller uh, property mm-hmm. um, do those people need to be a certain ethnicity to to be involved in that right if we're 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 identifying that they're producing pound for pound they're producing food with less water less less inputs and and maybe even less total energy when it's all said and done because they're right there in the city someplace so um what are all the trade-offs what are the trade-offs that we want to make right and and where did we so how did we get so far as to and again the report that you talked about from Vilsack it's not new. We no. this. Th- but, I mean, we did the same thing in 2017. I know. 2017, we had the same exact report almost. This one is just eight pages longer, I think, something like that. Yeah. Maybe it's all pictures is the difference and, and graphs. And so how much money can we piss away on stuff that doesn't matter? And I'm not saying that black farmers don't matter. That's that not isn't the point. The point. This report is not going to put one more black farmer into operation. 
You know, and I, I just got I, I got a mind to call Tom Bilsack and ask him, why are you singling out black farmers? What about the American Indian farmers? What about the Asians? Like we talked earlier, I just want him to answer be forced to answer well, that question. I mean, a big chunk of rural America is covered by Hispanics <laughs> today, right? I mean, there's a great number of of Hispanics that are that live in rural America today. So where are the Hispanic farmers? There are more the re- Hispanics working on farms than any other re- demographic. So why aren't they we incentivizing them to own the farm instead of working on the farm? Well, and and again, we uh, we've had this discussion about my own personal ethnicity before. And on one side of my family, we're mutts, right? Uh, that really is. I, there's no, we're Heinz fifty seven almost in the fact that we're some Indians moved to a part of the country where people that were nobody really knows what their genetics were. Technically, their ancestors had been Mexican citizens at one point because they lived in Texas, and so they were they were also Indians and Hispanic and. You throw a little German in there somewhere, and there may have been an, uh, an Irishman that stopped by. The redheaded kid in the pub was probably from Scottish descent. And so, I mean, but no one, if you go to the, the funny thing is, right, if you go to that part of the world, nobody's trying to overthink this. Yeah, exactly. I'm overthinking this, my clock. Roll out, second half, that's it. Certified Piedmontese helping cattlemen get closer to the consumer's food dollar and helping the consumer with a consistent, consistent supply of beef. CertifiedPiedmontese.com for the protein plethora that leads to healthy living. Welcome back. All right, Kent Lewis alongside Jay Truitt coming to us from halfway Missouri. Just because who doesn't want to be from halfway? Yeah, uh, gonna, one of the listen. One of the best state senators to ever serve in Missouri Senate was from halfway, a guy named Morris Westfall, hmm. who you probably cross paths with at one time or another. He was the FSA director, administrator, or whatever in I the state of Missouri him. at one point. But yep. I will tell you, Morris, Morris maybe was one of the great advocates for production agriculture and common sense that Missouri ever had. Uh, Not that there's not always good ones and bad ones, but Morris was a great one. And uh, number one, just a good guy. Halfway Missouri was his home. And uh, no matter what we talk about today, it all comes back to the USDA. It does. And I, well, here, hey, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. I'll let it go after this. But there is, this is like my final, my final point about this. So why, why, why are we studying this particular agency and this particular industry over any other industry in America? How many tech company CEOs are black? I, I and, wonder if and, we know. And, and what is what is the diversity of management in a tech CEO in a tech company today? It's I, I don't know what it is. I'm just saying we, we haven't even bothered to study that. And that's one of these burgeoning industries. What about uh, the construction industry? I, I mean, I also have an interest in the construction industry and nobody is analyzing how many people 
uh, in there. Uh, the best friend I have in the construction business happens to be uh, an African-American descent guy, but uh, he seems to be pretty much a standout in that community. You know, he's a good builder too. So, um, you know, I don't even know. And the more importantly, he and I talk uh, uh, two or three times a, a week and it never comes up. Oh, absolutely. We've, Why would it? I, I mean, he's one of the most important people that I know in in my own life, and uh, and we've ne- we've never found the need to actually discuss the breakdown of the entire industry, right? And whether or not um, there is something going on that drives uh, people in or out. There's a lot of people left agriculture in the last twenty to hundred years, if you look at that span. Um, We've kind of slowed the decline uh, on a numerical basis, but on a percentage basis, it's about the same as it's always been. And part of the reason is, is everybody moved to town. That reminds me that uh, Jason Brown is a black farmer from North Carolina. He and I were on the program at the Tennessee Cattlemen, and I was supposed to reach out to him after the meeting and get him on the air, and I got to do that. I'll do that. Yeah. You probably should have him explain to you how this works. That's I'll be great, I'll be intrigued. That's a great discussion, right? I'll get anyway, a hold of him today. We can. I'm sorry. Uh, we can move on now. Uh, the Biden budget is out as well. If you uh, if you heard something that sounded like thunder from the east, that was everybody in Washington D.C. throwing the Biden budget in the trash can, and it's boom. Uh, they do it all at one time. They print up thousands of copies, right? Every office gets like four copies, I think, something like that. Uh, they keep one on the shelf and the other three go in different trash cans in the office. Nobody even reads that stupid thing. It's it's one of the one of the sad but it's a sad document on top of that. Oh, uh, sure. The tax components alone will make you uh just shake your head. I'm more worried about tax components in Sherman County, Nebraska, to be honest. Uh, what I do want to spend some time on is the acceleration of this pipeline situation and the number of calls that I get about, we got to do something and it's in the 12th hour, but I, I just want to walk through this because it's, it's very clear to me, Jay, how this has taken place back in the day. And you would have been directly involved in this. I was always of the stand that the ethanol industry is wonderful but you should not take subsidies to build it. Build it through demand. Build it slow. Build it right. It'll be sustainable long term. They didn't do that. Obviously, we know that corn growers, renewable uh, fuel uh, coalition, everybody lobbied for money, money, money. Give us money. We'll build ethanol plants. And we did. Yeah. And now the ethanol plants are being neutered, literally, because... Yeah. If you don't get your ESG score in line, if you don't put your carbon, your, you take the carbon capture, put it in a pipeline, send it to Oliver County, North Dakota, and Barry, we're going to take you out of business. They're yeah. now sitting here with no place to turn because they continue to take money, take money, take money, and now the ethanol infrastructure is in trouble. What am I missing here? No, not you're not missing anything. Here, here's the saddest part of this whole this whole conversation about CO two. For example, in agriculture, CO2 has tremendous value. 
And instead, what we've chosen to do is follow the path of Greta Thunberg, right? And um, her pals, Al Gore, et cetera, et cetera, and figure out ways that we can bury those kinds of emissions and get rid of them instead of actually capturing them, moving them to the places that, or utilizing them in production systems that we really can use that intensive, intensively applied stuff, uh, be it uh, greenhouses or, or in, you know, other kinds of growing operations. 10 uses that are 10, the 10 highest and most viable uses of CO2. The market is unbelievable. In fact, a friend of mine contacted me. He's buying CO2, and in six months, it went from 17 cents a pound to 70 cents a pound. And for the states for the states that just uh, insist on pissing away the, the tax money that they got from making weed legal um, to, to turning it into credits for environmental improvement, it, at a minimum... Let them keep the CO2 and grow better wheat, right? I mean, it's one of the things that you can do is to pump it into a building that's growing marijuana or or, uh, hemp starter plants or whatever it happens to be. I mean, good grief. We literally have just, like, lost our mind when we start putting a nutrient, a nutrient in the ground to bury it forever. And yeah, try to seal it away. You, you just got to think about that. That's one aspect of it. The second one, though, is is that when you when you take money from the king, you're beholden to the king. And it is what it is. If you cash the check um, all the way through from the subsidy standpoint, you can't really ignore it. Mean, meanwhile, on the same ranch but in a different place, uh, Sunday, late Sunday evening, Sunday, you got to think about this. On Sunday, the Biden administration released the rule that was going to ban another 14 million acres worth of drilling on the Alaskan North Slope. And so, yeah, they let Phillips have that one little, well, they made a big press release on Friday. Oh, I, and I that, saw the media reports yeah. all talking about that one. Yeah, yeah. So you see the media all talked about the one. They banned all the rest of them. So they made ConocoPhillips the the exclusive uh, uh, provider. And I, it just seems they called it an existential threat to, uh, to the, basically to the sovereignty of our country, right? Mm-hmm. That we would continue to uh, uh, drill oil on the Alaskan uh, North Slope, the wilderness. And uh, I don't know. I, I have a good friend that flew those pipelines back and forth, right? And that flew crews in and out and supplies in and out to all that for a good number of years. And uh, he talks about how, how he'd go like two years without seeing anything alive, right. you know, uh, sometimes. And so you just got to – is that really the existential threat to America? I mean, it is – uh, again, well, uh, we could maybe put that report on top of the one from USDA, and uh, you can damn. roll them up really tight, and it makes makes a bat that you can hit people over the head with. But. 
I'm back to my original statement, and I wasn't being sensational. I wasn't being anything other than factual. Get rid of the USDA. It's a blight. It's a cancer. Starve it. 110,000 people work in this department. Oh, no, many more than that. Yeah, but directly, and the and, and, and there's more than that. I, I, I venture to say that number is half of the real number. Wow. And that's the the real interesting thing, right? Because you've got a bunch of contracted employees, and then you have long term uh, temporaries, and then you have uh, the appointed individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm sure that if you did a real a real search, you'd find that there's about uh, at least twice that many people that are full full time employed by the USDA. Directly and indirectly. That's, the same. That's why the USDA has this little saying about employees joke with one another. Who's your farmer? Yeah. No. As many employees in the USDA as we have actual farmers. Yeah, because I, it, it and uh, now I'll say something that'll just insult like a whole slice of American <laughs> agriculture. But... If you're talking about a commercial size farm and a farm that actually is commercially viable, um, then it's uh, they uh, uh, each one of those guys has two employees. Man, and when you really look at what are those that commercial, and again, I, somebody's going to um, send you an email, a nasty email, and call me uh, all kinds of names. Uh, because they're managing the homestead or live on 12 acres someplace, right? And, uh, and or they figured out how to barter pork bellies for, uh, what is it you were trying to trade for today? Something, I can't remember. I had gold, I think, or anything you can get. Uh, you know, pork belly's well, worth gold, right? Yeah. Or ammo. It, ammo, right? Yeah. No, but the, the point being that if you look at the people that are really just kind of a tr- look at a traditional agriculture operation, it's not a 30 cal uh, operation with that's growing 80 acres of row crops and 40 acres of hay somewhere that you're not making a viable living there. Roll route, last segment. Detroit, Trent Luce after this. Let's face it, if you're listening to this very conversation right now, somewhere somebody is making it possible in a coal strip, in a coal-fired power plant, in a transmission line, whatever the case may be, life is powered by coal. Full details at Lignite.com. It's about the people, my friends. Welcome back. Roll out, Trent Loose. We've gone through the racism within the USDA. Mm-hmm. We've gone through the pipeline, pipeline of death. We're burying the <laughs> nutrients. That makes sense to who? And <clears throat> so in the last segment, Jay, I want to talk about something that I think is very complex. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine from Western Nebraska. He feeds some cattle. He's involved in some off-farm income, but he has a pulse of every day is everything's all livestock. Mm-hmm. And this new beef plant is right now. It's the buzz of North Platte, Nebraska. They're they're starting sure. to build. There's a sure. new 37. What do they call that one in uh, Cheyenne? There's a new one in, mm-hmm. in Cheyenne. 30, 30, 307 beef with the 307 yeah. area code. I think that's right. Uh, 
with the shortage of the number of cows, it looks yeah. like the future of the beef business just is going to be fantastic. And yet, as long as we have this consolidation and manipulation at the at the market point, I, I just if you continue to go through the channels we've always gone through, I don't see how even we should have the economists on with us today to give us this data. I just don't see how it's going to be the windfall that everybody thinks it's going to be currently. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, listen, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just say something uh, one more time. Seem like I'm the unpopular uh, guy this morning. Maybe <laughs> I've uh, over the last uh, three years, I've been asked to evaluate uh, 48 different packing plant proposals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found one that I thought was viable. And that is working with some really good economists uh, on the team that understand the industry inside and out, right? And that have have a lot of experience in it. Uh, most of them have, have been in packing plants uh, as a big part of their life themselves. And the pro- the problem, and so uh, even if you even if you take away the concentration issue and and the price management issues that uh, that the industry is trying to, to to work its way through in beef and in pork, right? The the actual net margins. Uh, what? Well, and let me just go back and and tell tell you something that I got told by one of the big four packers one day. And uh, they had, uh, this is back in the era when I still work for the cattlemen, right? And people thought that we were beholding to, um, to the packers. Uh, and one of these packing, uh, the, the head of the red meat division had flown to Washington, D.C. on his private jet, literally just to chew my rear end. Uh, for a dinner one night and I was going to sit there and be nice to him and polite, but I had some questions of my own. And in the middle of him complaining for about an hour and a half about how his overall margins were just so narrow that they couldn't figure anything. I said, why don't you just get out of the damn business? Right. Why don't you just quit? You, you, every time you come, they complain just as much. There's just only three of them. So you don't hear about it. And I said, and I spend most of my day, listening to people complain about you. So why don't you yeah, just absolutely. get it? Why don't you just get out of the business? And he goes, well, we can't. The float on the money and us trading that money overnight on the futures market is worth more than the cattle and the hogs that we killed during the day. Uh-huh. And it, so and it, why are you here complaining to me then? Yeah. And that's what I told him. I said, okay, I think the discussion's over and guess what? You're buying dinner and I'm just yeah. going to go home. Right. Because I haven't seen my family for 20 hours. Uh, and so I I have I've little faith uh, in in us ever. Re- and the, the real issue is, is that the, the, the actual margin in building a new plant, a bit, a new commercial sized plant and it being viable only works if that if that entity owns a piece of the marketing channel. It literally is the only way that you really make that work. And that is how we get past this this idea on pricing. But that means that the guy feeding cattle and the guy producing cattle 
in order to really benefit from that, have to do the same thing that you do when you produce a pork belly. When do you get paid on your pork belly? When it sells at the end, not when you're yeah. not when that hog reaches two hundred and forty two point seven pounds, right? Or whatever the magic number is today. It is when you and not when you kill him and not when you process him. It is when you actually receive that exchange of funds in the marketing channel or when I order a package of jerky, well, then all of a sudden you get paid then, right? And until until we make the adjustments in our system somehow to, to create that mechanism, we do. And we create these, we create these producer-owned co-ops that own a packing plant, but then they try to get paid at the packing level. And that's yeah, not, that doesn't work. And that and that doesn't really increase the margin. It just changes it a little bit, and it's not always higher. And so the, the smartest approach I've seen from a group of producers working together, and it gets no press whatsoever, is what happened here in Nebraska with Holstone Foods at Horm- They purchased the Hormel facility yeah. at Fremont, Nebraska. Yeah. But what they did is that Hormel continued to buy product from, had a contract to buy their product from them for X period of time. And it may be perpetuity. I don't know. But they already had the market in covered. Hormel wanted out of the the production and the processing side. They just wanted to sell food. And so, and so, like, think about what it is you just said, the words that just came out of your mouth, right? And well, that's what I found in every one of the proposals. The major packers, if they could figure out how to get out of the production business, they for sure would. Absolutely. And yep. and and so, I, I do. Do prices get manipulated? Yeah, I I mean they do, at every level by all kinds of different people. When you, uh, I used to know one guy that bought a giant chunk of the feeder cattle in, in uh, southwest Missouri. You know who he hated more than anyone else? It wasn't a packer. It was those guys from Nebraska that would come down and compete against him and make him pay, sure. make him pay four cents more for the very same cattle he had bought uh, the week before. I, I think the Nebraska guys were nice. It was the Kansas guys. No, it really was the Nebraska guys that caused the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> They'd already spooked off the Kansas people before, right? So, no, uh, 10 years before, it was the Kansas guys. And yeah. 10 years before that, it was the Panhandle of Texas guys. And so, you know... We live in this environment where people are are trying to figure out how to manipulate prices. You're not going to, if we think that we're just going to eliminate that by some kind of rule of law, I'm telling you, um, we're kind of kidding ourselves. We're looking, we're trying, we're trying to solve cancer by putting a Band-Aid on a, on a mole. Yeah. Uh, it, I read as much, and I haven't, I need to get back to this, about the early days of the meatpacking business in the United States and particularly in New York. Uh-huh. And I just started laughing because in like 1870, there were 80 some meatpackers from 1870 to 1900 in that real birth of the meatpacking world. Uh-huh. And the biggest complaint they had was 80 different meat shops was that the big three had too much control yeah. and they're trying to figure out how to stop the, the price fixing and manipulation. Yeah. So I read that and I'm Never like, ended. wait a minute. 
what what we think that we're going to fix this right. it's been here forever i i i uh i liken our industry uh almost sadly i liken it kind of to the u.s shoe industry and we're Instead of instead of shoe manufacturers in the United States that figured out how to actually be partners at the retail point, we kept trying to produce shoes the old-fashioned way in the United States. And a lot of little towns all across the, especially across the central part of the United States, a strip that went from somewhere around here all the way to the East Coast, uh, yeah. they all closed their shoe plants and they ended up moving to another country. Because that in that country they were willing to wait to get paid till the shoe sold and take a piece of that action, and they could they had cheaper labor, yeah. And people talk about all the rest of it, but the real mechanical thing that took took difference was that uh, companies like Adidas they actually don't get paid either, and so they didn't pay their manufacturing bill until they got paid. Nobody was fronting that money. Um, and, and so until we can, until we figure that out from an agricultural perspective, those people that produce foods that are used directly by the consumer, now you can't do that in the corn and bean business, right? Because, or the wheat business, because it's too, there's too many steps between you and the consumer, but in the beef business, there's only right. two steps past the cattle feeder, two. And we can't we can't figure out how to make those relationships. There are people who are doing it, by the way, in certain markets, but it nobody will ever talk about it because they don't want anybody to figure out that they're getting a, uh, they're getting a much bigger chunk of the retail dollar. Well, I've dabbled in it since 1994. It's hard, right? It's no, it's no easier yeah. today. I mean, it's one thing to sell for a custom processing where you sell the whole animal, deliver the animal, they get everything. When you start selling it piece by piece, it, what happens is you what you can't see in this room, freezers are everywhere. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't work. And a bunch of that is full of stuff that you may never sell. Yeah, absolutely. One or two of those freezers is full of something that you'll end up having to grind and turn into something of much less value at some point. Or you have to be creative and figure out how to turn that grind into something of more value, right? Yeah. Uh, like jerky. There it is. There you go. Right. We've jerkied our way all the way through this broadcast. For Jay Truett, I'm Trent Luce, both of us reminding you all roads do lead to a roll route. So we have a couple of things that we need to discuss. Perotic Auction Services now preparing for the next sale on April the 12th near Murdo, South Dakota. This ranch is, uh, what is it, 2,305 acres, just two miles east of Murdo, South Dakota. Dan Perotic has full details about this and every other auction that he has pending and what's going on. Go to Perotic Auction Services, PeroticAuction.com. That's P-I-R-O-U-T-E-K. Perotic. Makes perfect sense, right? PeroticAuction.com. Tell Dan that Trent said to call. Also want to remind you the Wall of Honor continues to make its splash. And it's not the Wall of Honor that's splashing. It is the people that contribute to the community through service to the United States military, the veterans, the active duty, and the first responders. 
It's accumulation of the community that builds. I'm going to keep coming back to that. The future of this nation is coming back to strong communities once again. We've been federalized and we've been globalized too long. The people who sacrifice, that's what they're trying to prevent. TheWallOfHonor.org. See you tomorrow.